Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, and with me from Wales is my co-host, the founder of Parascience, Steve Parsons. Good evening. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. So this is, uh, I figured it out, this is uh, 6,327th show. Really? No, I made that up. I thought you had. I didn't think you could count that high. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I, 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 would, I have no idea. Between all the shows, uh, you know, between Ghost Chronicles, Next Generation, the original Ghost Chronicles, and uh, the international one, uh, how many shows it's... Uh, you, you, need to, uh, you need to come up with another one. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> the Chronicles of the Chronicles of Ghosts. There you go. Chronicles of Ronald. Yeah. I like that one better. Wrong, wrongs, Krongs. Yeah, there you go. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, we have a great guest on our show. I'm kind of excited that you were able to pull this off. So, uh, there you go. I'm really pleased to have this guest tonight. Um, very... Uh, a, a gentleman. You know, do you remember when we had Derek on the show and you went all fanboy? Derek, Derek who? Derek Akora, the man that you went all fanboy over. I don't know that. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, about. well, the, there, is a, there is a small risk I might go all fanboy. Yeah, okay. So, anyways, uh, I'm not sure if we do have him on the line or not since Stax is down and I can't really see anything. Uh, but, anyway. So, um, we did uh, last weekend. We did a uh, evening of enchanting. Excuse me, an enchanting evening of uh, Victorian table tipping that uh, went pretty cool. Okay. And you know, people uh, people do associate table tipping with the Victorians, um, and yet it, it it kind of predates the Victorians. All right. We, so what, what's the Victorian era? You tell me, and we'll go with the predates. Well, no. I mean, we always what's associate the Victorian the, era. Totally. The Victorian, well, I mean, t- t- uh, spiritualism. Uh, what? What? Spit it out. Well, spiritualism doesn't exist until um, uh, 1840s. With um, if you typed in the number correctly, Victorian <laughs> era. With the, with the uh, Fox Sisters in the 1840s. So um, it, it probably arrives after that. Queen Victoria was on the throne from. Uh, the late oh god, I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh she, my god, she died she's in nineteen oh two. Ever? Yeah, well, if you nineteen oh two, wasn't it? So, um, so that's about right. So she was on the throne for sixty something years. So, right, uh, so it, that would make sense. The table tipping would be in, in the Victorian era because it's after the uh, rise of spiritualism, and it fits in perfect. So, there you go. Yeah. So, anyways, I guess we're get, having a difficult time getting a hold of our uh, guests. Uh, we ju- I was just while you were talking, then um, I was just sending, resending the number to um, the producers. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, anyway, hopefully. yeah. So, 
It was cool. It was, uh, you know, Vict- you know, table tipping is, is interesting, too. And, and it goes all the way back to uh, Roman times. I, I don't know if you were aware of that, but they use tables in, in spirit communication. Uh, the Roman times, or can we push it back even earlier than that, possibly? Uh, it could be possibly. I mean, you know, there wasn't I mean, that the many Romans, The Romans... There. Yeah, I mean, the Romans gave us uh, the hamburger, they gave us plumbing, they gave us underfloor heating. Um, but many of those things, they, they, they kind of stole from the Greeks. So I'm wondering, I, I don't know off the top of my head, I mean, certainly things like the, the Greeks were, were um, well-versed with using oracles for divination, uh, whether they used table tipping, um, or whether that is a peculiarity of the spiritualist movement, the post-spiritualist movement of the 80s. Well, I mean, the whole idea about the about, uh, spiritualist movement and table tipping is that it eliminated the middle man, which was the medium. Uh, by uh, You didn't need a medium to do table tipping. You didn't need a medium to do the Ouija board or, or uh, you know, glass swirling or any of that thing. So basically they eliminated the, the need for a medium. So that's why it was so popular. I mean, it became, you know, basically when it started, it's almost a uh, poly game. And, and so... Uh, you know, that's why people like it because, yeah, you don't have to be a medium to have fun on a uh, table tipping or uh, glass willing or any of those other uh, methods of divination. Well, you're certainly correct that it's it it's it was used as a parlor game. Um, however, there is you know, you say you can bypass the medium, and you certainly can in the parlor game version, of course. But the the whole thing about the um, table tipping is it's been kind of hijacked by spiritualists so uh, you know they they all they will maintain that um that you need to have the media well they will maintain that but it's not necessarily that's the why the popularity rose i mean that's why uh, the ouija board became a poly game that's why it was sold as a toy um well what's your opinion but we have our guest on so but we do um, i uh, yeah, I'm going to... Um, I, now, we know that when we have a guest via telephone, uh, the Skype goes a little bit cuckoo, so uh, the audio might drop a little bit. Um, but I'm just going to... I'm just ho- hoping that Guy... Guy, uh, Guy are, you, are you on? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. Excellent. Uh, Ron, um, the gen- our guest tonight is Guy Lyon Playfair, who has been a member of the uh, 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 council member for the Society for Psychical Research and has been an investigator for, well, he was certainly an inspiration to me whilst I was growing up. Um, And one of of the the, the dozen books, uh, the the dozen books he wrote have been inspirational in guiding me. Um, He was involved in many uh, investigations over the years and uh, including some very famous ones and most recently has been examining something that we talked about quite recently which is the telepathy between twins uh, Guy it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show Thank you Guy uh, sorry Ron uh, Guy can you hear us alright? Uh, yes yeah, a bit faint but, but uh, just about hear you Okay, thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, go ahead, Steve. Carry on. I, I was just going to say, Guy, if we can just, um, for, for the benefit of, of uh, the listeners, uh, many of whom are American, 
You've been, as I say, an inspiration to me, certainly whilst I was growing up, and you inspired you know, much of my own psychical research. What was it that got you interested in the subject? Because you were originally a journalist. Well, I, I still am. Um, <clears throat> I got interested when I was about uh, eight years old, I think, because um, we lived in a very remote country cottage, and... Um, we weren't near anything at all, except fields and cows. And all I had to read was the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, which my my mother belonged to. And I just read that as if it was uh, perfectly normal and um, found it a bit sort of heavy going at times. But I, <laughs> um, I just took it for granted, really. And this is what, what goes on out there, and um, I may as well know about it. Now, Guy, you were you were born in India. I, I'm not quite sure how long you lived out in India, but but did the culture, the the, the uh, Indian culture, um, play any part in your development? Uh, no, because because I was born into a um, uh, military setting on, on a British British Army camp, so I was brought up more, with more of a military culture than an Indian one. I, I certainly did have contacts with, with Indians. We had all kinds of um, um, maids and servants and things, as one did in the days of the Raj. But um, I've always sort of uh, had special feelings about India because, after all, I was born there and um, um, try to keep in touch as much as I can. When you when you uh, returned to to Britain, um, did you immediately uh, did you because was there a break in in your in your developing interest? Um, you know, whilst you went through schooling and and into uh, a career, or did did was the interest maintained right the way through at a constant level? Uh, well, uh, I didn't really um, get involved until I went to university, Cambridge. Um, ah. where they did have a psychical research society, which was a bit of a joke, really. It was just an excuse for quite a lot of beer and, and general <laughs> hilarity. And we didn't do any very serious research. I think we once did a 24-hour card-guessing um, experiment, which I can't quite remember very much about, <laughs> except that we had plenty of um, uh, beer on hand. And... and um, then, of course, I went to Brazil, where it was all very different, and that, that's where things really got moving. Yes, I think your your time in Brazil certainly inspired your first book, didn't it? Um, the Flying yeah. Cow. Uh, <laughs> yes, is there a, sorry? Well, uh, um, Brazil was such a totally different society, and um, a great deal more fun. I mean, it, it was um, quite a contrast to, to the... England of the 1950s and 60s, and um, it was just um, a completely different way of um, living, and I, lo I loved it. It was great then. I w I'm glad I'm not there now, but it, it was quite. It was when I was there. It was tremendous fun, and also very cheap, so I, I could afford to live pretty well <laughs> on a very low salary. So I was getting paid so, in pounds. So Guy, uh, you've been to India, Brazil, and in the UK. 
Do you find that, uh, I mean, how did that affect your research? I mean, do, I'm sure they each look at it, you know, quite differently, you know, the paranormal. Well, uh, very differently because um, uh, they were absolutely um, opposite extremes. At that time, the Society of Psychical Research was very moribund and very kind of academic and ra rather snobbish. I mean, they didn't really um, Changed care very much for phenomena that were reported by, by um, exotic people who, who probably weren't, weren't white Protestants, you know. And um, Brazil, it was just the opposite. It was very, very much an indigenous culture, um, quite apart from the, the African input, which is still very strong. Um, you also had the um, spiritist input, which is mainly um, uh, European from France, from the writings of Alan Kardec. And um, they, they all got along very well. There was far less sort of class consciousness in, in Brazil than, the, than there was in England, and indeed still is. So um, I found it much more liberating, and um, also Brazilians are, are very accessible, and they're quite accustomed to total strangers banging on the door saying, hello, can you tell me about your poltergeist? And they would, uh, which wouldn't happen here. Mm -hmm. oh, that's true. You know, I think you're absolutely right about the uh, your... your um Description of the Society for Psychical Research, dare I say, being moribund and somewhat academic, still probably applies today. Oh, no, no, it's very different today. Is it really? It's, it's, well, it's all action okay. and excitement, is it? Yes, it's very active. <laughs> Oh, and I was going to say, um, my impression of the SPR is that they're a bit moribund and academic, but there you go. Uh, they were obviously much more moribund and academic. <laughs> but they were more, yes, they were more so um, 50 years ago, certainly. Blimey. <laughs> <coughs> now, whilst you were in Brazil, you were, you were involved uh, close mostly in, in examining um, one of Brazil's best-known mediums, uh, Chico Javier, I think I pronounced Chico Javier, yes, indeed. I, I met him and um, um, read a great many of his books, and I heard him speak on several occasions, and he, he, he was extremely impressive. And um, he's, he's still very much, although he died uh, 11 years ago, he, he's still very much remembered. And he's something of a national hero in, in Brazil. And they're still examining his writings and finding evidence that uh, very much strengthens, strengthens their authenticity as genuine communications from um, what he calls uh, spirits. I don't know any other word for them. Mm -hmm. So his, his reputation is improving, really, which is, is interesting. How much of, of your own uh, research has, has transcended across to um, the the current work that's being done on Javier? Javier, well, um, I've written a little uh, short book about him just really as introduction to people who've never heard of him and um, quoted some fairly lengthy extracts from his books, which um, at the time I wrote it had not been translated before into English, and they now have, so, so um, many of his books are available in English, and you can easily track them down on the internet, and um, the, the early ones are certainly worth reading, I mean, they are quite extraordinary um, examples of um, books uh, received by automatic writing. 
uh, ostensibly from various um, spirits, entities, uh, some of which have been very definitely identified and, and compared with their original writings when they were alive. And, and um, you know, all sorts of expert linguists have analyzed them and studied them and found the same patterns of construction, grammar, and syntax as, as the original writers, which I don't think anybody's ever done before with anybody. Did you find that um, your own position, your stance, changed whilst you were uh, working or examining the case of Javier? Um, were, you, were you predominantly sceptical who moved towards a uh, survivalist cause, or were you always uh, you know, sort of inclined to, to uh, believe? Well, Chico was such an impressive uh, character. He, he's the kind of person you don't really question. I mean, his um, his whole uh, um, personality and presence was um, totally um, convincing, genuine. And I never really heard anything um, at all, at all um, likely uh, against him. And uh, I did quite a bit of research by people who'd known him since he since he first appeared on the scene, and um, some of them were pretty impressive. I mean, like for instance, the chief of police in São Paulo, who's not the kind of person you'd expect to be a, devo a devotee of, of Chico Xavier, but he certainly was, and he'd attended several of his sessions, and he'd he'd, um, he, he'd taken part in séances himself, and. Uh, <clears throat> That's not something you'd expect in a, in a city like São Paulo, which has got its fair share of crime and all that. And um, Davis, the chief of police, uh, telling me all about his uh, his, his um, experiences with, with mediums and um, materializations, in fact, and so on. So, um, yeah, things are a bit different in Brazil, as you may gather. Mm. So, Guy, um, you talk about him being involved in, in seances and so forth. Have you uh, ever participated in, in any three years? Sorry, I'm not hearing very well. <clears throat> Can oh. you talk a bit louder? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned seances and his participation in seances. I was wondering if you were able to participate or did you participate in any seance through your years of research? Oh, several, yes. Um, I, um, I took part in quite a few in in Brazil, and um, I think the most impressive that I can remember was the artist uh, Luis Gasparetto, who's quite well known. He, he goes into a trance and produces drawings in the style of all sorts of well-known artists, which... Um, uh, he, he does at tremendous speed, and, and um, I don't really think that, that most people, even artists, would be able to do that, uh, especially with his eyes closed in the darkness, which, which is, is what it was. Um, and then I, I saw several of these so-called psychic surgeons, you know, people who sort of chop you open with anesthetics and pull out various bits of stuff, and um, quite a lot, some of them are certainly fakes, but, but some of them are not. And um, that was also very interesting. I got to know one of them quite well. 
and he let me sit beside him while he was at work, and I uh, was able to get a really close-up view of what he was doing, and it was pretty extraordinary. Guy, how do you respond to um, critics like Joe Nickel, who who has who has oh, said geez. that, who has said, yeah, who has said that you know, you really need to be a trained magician not to have the wool pulled over you. And of course, Randy has has made these very similar claims that psychical researchers uh, and investigators of the paranormal are not perhaps best equipped uh, to to examine the, the these sort of cases. Well, I don't have, I don't really have anything to say to people like that. I mean, I've got other things to do, and but also, uh, yeah. Mr. Randy might like to explain why it is that magicians frequently sell their tricks to other magicians because they don't know how they're done. So I don't, I don't accept the magician as an authority on anything. Sorry. <laughs> the good answer. <laughs> they do. No, uh, I, I, I did. A, I collaborated with the. Dean of the British Magic Circle, with uh, David Burglass, who's a real magician, a very good one, and a very nice fellow. And um, without giving away too many trade secrets, he made it clear that, yes, they do buy and sell each other's tricks, because they, <clears throat> a really clever magician is, is quite often ahead of the field, and, he, and his, his colleagues just don't know how he does it. Mm-hmm. So they pay him large sums of money for the secret. So, you know, they're, they're not as expert as they think they are. Yeah, you know, training in, 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 or at least being exposed to magician is, is not a bad idea. And, uh, however, it isn't, should be like a prerequisite. I mean, uh, I, I've been lucky enough to be associated with a, a, a magic circle as well. And it's interesting to see how they do things. But, in, in fact, when we... Uh, do a presentation. For instance, we did a presentation that Steve came over last year, a couple of years ago, for a spirit quest, and we did a red light, red light seance performed by magicians to, you know, to to let people uh, see, you know, at least feel and, and and see what you know can be faked and and not faked, but uh, performed. Yes, yeah, so I've seen magicians doing a, a seance and they do it very well, but it's. Um pretty obvious how they do it, really. I mean, I have done, spent a certain amount of time reading up on on stage magic, and um, right. there are basically only about five or six um, tricks which are presented um, in connection with, with anything psychic, and um, there are one or two magicians who are, who are extremely clever and quite perplexing. But on the whole, they're generally not, not too hard to see through. I mean, I'm tired of seeing Mr. Randy try to bend spoons like, like Uri does, and he can't do it. <laughs> I was going to say, was stopped, it Rat? So I think Randy he stopped up. Yeah, he stopped trying now, luckily, so he, he really wasn't very good at it. I apologise if we sometimes appear to talk over you, Guy, because it, there's a slight delay on the Skype and it, it can be a bit, a bit troublesome sometimes. I was say, oh, well, not Rand- to worry, yeah. Randy once famously said that Geller only knew five tricks. Um, but, but, I mean, a, a, an earlier psychical researcher himself took on, um, Harry Price took on uh, Masculine, uh, notoriously and challenged Masculine uh, several times to perform the, the tricks that he claimed that the mediums were performing under exactly the same degree of control. And if um, I'm fairly certain that Masculine, in fact, I know for a fact that Masculine never responded to any of Price's challenges. 
Uh, well, there have been several other examples of challenges that were made to magicians which they couldn't live, deliver on. <clears throat> so they always have a way of getting out of it. I mean, they always say they, 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 they can't be sure of the original condition and they don't know if so-and-so had an accomplice and so on. There's, there's always, they've always got an out somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very good at getting out of tight corners without, without actually uh, revealing anything. So I, I don't think they really help very much. I, I actually know, um, I have known four members of our magic circle quite well. And they've been very helpful in telling me, um, they don't give away any of their secrets, but they do tell me if something that I described to them could have been done by trickery, and, and quite often they can't. So, yeah. so I've, I have looked into this, yes, and... and um, uh, particularly with Uri Geller, he, he's got several of them completely flummoxed. I mean, he's not as easy to debunk as some people seem to think. So, Guy, how do you draw the line between being a total, uh, you know, uh, someone like uh, Randy or, or so forth, and still being critical of uh, the paranormal? Well, I'm critical of everything. I mean, I, I'm... Uh, the essential quality of skepticism is that you examine and question. That's what the word means. The Greek word skeptis time, it means to examine. It doesn't mean just to throw it straight out of the window without examining, which is what, what these sort of fake skeptics like Randy do. Uh, they um, don't seem to know what the word means. And, and um, I don't think anybody who's not a true skeptic shouldn't be doing research of any kind. Because nothing is true just because somebody says it is. You have to you have to see it happen, and and hopefully understand how it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's you know I think that's you know it's one of the the keys of science is observation. Um, yeah, and starts with observation. Yes, of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know that's why a, a lot of people uh, discount uh, eyewitness testimony, but yet that's the beginning of an investigation in the beginning of uh you know a, a theory okay they saw this okay we don't throw it out just because okay we i wasn't there uh you, you know it could have been this it could have been that but you don't know what it could have been because you weren't there so you start with the the uh eyewitness testimony well it's not something that worries me too much because um we we have a principle in 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 the law, certainly in in Britain, uh, which is called similar fact evidence. If, if if the same people report the same effect all over the world a hundred times, it's far more likely to be true than if you just get one witness. And that's exactly what you have in um, particularly in what I'm doing with um, with twins. You you get absolutely identical accounts from literally the, everywhere in the world. Well, Guy, uh, we're coming up on break, so we're going to talk about twins when we come back. I think that's a good segue into it. And mm. uh, so can you hold on for, for us? Yeah, sure. Okay. Thank you All so right. much. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojanet, Pararex, uh, Planet Paranormal, Astronet Radio, and maybe the Ghost Box. Who knows? We'll be right back after the following messages.
Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. of Ghost Chronicles International. Uh, our very special guest tonight is Guy Lyon Playfair, who has been a long-time influence um, on my investigation uh, pathway and was perhaps most notable, and I know, Guy, you, you probably don't really like talking about this anymore, but we have to deal with it because they are just so damn popular at the moment. Uh, um, you have been a long-time investigator of poltergeists. Mm. So our guest tonight is Guy Lyon Playfair, uh, who was the lead investigator on the notorious Enfield case. But your 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 involvement with poltergeists goes way, way back beyond um, Enfield to Brazil. Yes, uh, I, I, I did several cases in um, São Paulo when I was living there, and that, that was my introduction to the wonderful world of the poltergeist. I was able to... to um, Start with a very, very good case straight off, the one that's known as Ipiranga, which is a suburb of São Paulo, and um, that was where we managed to record um, a series of extremely loud thumps on the ceiling, which um, I thought at the time it would be interesting to go up there and thump myself and then see if there was any difference on on the um, analysis of the. Um, uh, the audio, which we couldn't do at the time, and in fact couldn't do it until um, 
about 10 years ago when my colleague uh, Barry Colvin of the mm-hmm. Society of Psychical Research, who's got his own laboratory, he's got a chemical factory with all the gear, and he, he did an analysis of my thumps and, and the poltergeist and found they were completely different. And he was not able to reproduce the kind of acoustic signature, as they call it, um, by any kind of normal means. So I think that comes as close to hard evidence as you can get in this this business. And it's something that hasn't been done before, so that, that's, that's, that's really um, quite a step forward. Yeah, Barry's uh, did did uh, did some extraordinary work with um, acoustics within within paranormal, particularly relating to to poltergeist, which I, I have a personal bias toward because Barry was generous enough to include a chapter in uh, the book that I co-edited, co-authored, uh, Paracoustics, um, yes. which which gives some 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 further indication of that. But I, I, I gather from, from, from your own book, uh, This House is Haunted, uh, that you were a rather re- reluctant participant in the notorious Enfield case. Very much, yes. Uh, I, I just finished an, um, a book which took me two years and was very exhausting, and I wanted to go on holiday. <laughs> and in fact, um, I'd actually been waiting at a bus stop to go to the Romanian embassy to get a visa and it was in the days when London buses just didn't come. And I waited for about half an hour and then thought, hell, and I, I went off for a walk in the park instead. And then I heard uh, um, on the radio about, about this poltergeist going on. And, uh, and uh, we had, a by chance, we had a lecture at the Society of Psychical Research about poltergeist, where Maurice Gross turned up, who'd just been to Enfield, and he made it pretty clear that this was an exceptional case. So I forgot about the holiday and went to Enfield instead. And that's how it started. I, <clears throat> I certainly never planned to go there. I, I planned to go there sort of once or twice just to, to um, give some support to Morris, who was a new new member. This was his first investigation. And he, he was really the lead researcher, not not me. I mean, he, he was the... Sherlock Holmes. I was just a Watson. I, I did the uh, the book and, and um, wrote it all down. But Morris did did a great deal of the work, and extremely well too. I may say. I mean, he was a brilliant investigator. Now I. I, I... I've got to say here, I mean, there is a huge interest in poltergeists and has been for a number of years. And people will will who may not even yet have heard about the Enfield uh, haunting will start to associate it from the summer because in June we have the release of The Conjuring Two. Um, which, oh, the Warrens. Uh, we, yeah, I was going to say that where Ed and Lorraine Warren claim to have have resolved this case now, as as the person who was there at the time. <laughs> And we we had uh, Andrea Perrin um, on recently as a guest, and she was involved at the at the house in Williamsburg in Rhode Island, where the Warren solved the Conjuring case. Um, how how accurate? I mean, were they even involved? Did did Ed and Rain you know have any input in, into Enfield? Well, if they did, I said I missed it. Um, <laughs> it must have been extremely quick. Uh, I met I met Ed Warren once, and all I can remember is him telling me how much money I could make out of it, which which um, I just didn't really know what to say to that. I uh, 
at, at that time hadn't made anything out of it at all, or any other. I spent a whole year, in fact, without any income. And um, I got the impression that that was all he was interested in, so I just got out of the way and, and stayed out of the way until he, he left. So I can't really say anything uh, more about him because I, I, I wasn't there. <clears throat> now, in the case of... I, I, I don't want to dwell on the Anfield case because your own book and, uh, and there are 400-odd thousand hits on, on uh, Google relating to the case so people can look up the Enfield case for themselves. Um, but I'd, I'd like to, if I may, just before we, we move on to your more recent work, uh, just touch on, on your your involvement in Portuguese and your thoughts about the way that they've developed because they are very, very topical. They're very current at the moment. And there has been movement within um, the ghost hunting fraternity uh, to develop the Portuguese as a separate uh, classification as a more evil personification, a demonic personification, uh, separated from hauntings. What is your, I mean, you have probably more than anybody else that I'm aware of investigated more poltergeist cases. Um, what is your personal take on uh, the poltergeist and this, this idea by William Roll, a parapsychologist, that we're just dealing with some sort of teen angst? Uh, uh, this recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Well, uh, as I, I always say, that, that poltergeist is simply a word for something we don't understand. And we're just coming up to the 500th anniversary of the first use of the word in, in print, incidentally, by Martin Luther in one of his pamphlets, where he, he refers to a poltergeist with, without defining it. So he, he obviously assumes that people knew what he meant, and it, and it was probably in use before, before uh, printing became, became available in the 1460s, 60s. so it's a very old word, and you'd think after 500 years that the people would take it rather more seriously and, and try to work out what it is, but, but the um, even parapsychologists don't really seem to want to know about it, and, and th there is a... Uh, a very determined movement going on in, in a small group that I belong to where we are trying to figure out exactly what it is because nobody nobody knows. Uh, and um, luckily we have people who, who've got plenty of experience. Uh, Barry Colvin is, is one of them and, and um, one or two others. And um, we, we are um, hope, hopefully making some progress. We've already... Um, so we've already established that these noises that they make do, do not um, are not repeatable, and uh, they seem to come from another dimension as well because they don't echo. There's never any echo in the room, which, which um, you know, the, the the wrappings seem to come from inside the the floor rather than from the surface, which is rather hard to explain. And oddly enough, the only similar acoustic pattern is is from an earthquake which also comes from inside the ground, as it were. So that, that, that's, a, that's a clue. I mean, it, it's, it's clues like that which give scientists something to work on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where it, what it means yet, but I mean, the, the only thing people like me can do is just record the evidence mm -hmm. and leave it to the experts to figure out what it all means because they don't have the training to do that. But we have, we have established... Um, 
which, as I say, has not been done before, except uh, on a very small scale in, in Canada so, some years ago. They, they recorded just as one or two raps and found they, 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 were, they, they looked quite different to, to um, the kind of noise you can make yourself. And um, that at least is a start. But if, if only a few more people got involved and got interested and got, got um, some serious attention to the problem, it, it, it might move, move on. I think burbling away about evil spirits just doesn't help at all. I mean, I think it's rubbish. And it doesn't, so, doesn't advance our knowledge of anything. So, Guy, how how long after you investigated the Enfield uh, poster guy did you write the book on it? Um, um, Roughly. Uh, well, I, I think when when it um, when it ended in October of '78, I actually moved house, so that was quite an upheaval, mm -hmm. and. Um, I started work on it in, in a completely bare room with, with no floor, uh, no carpet and everything, just sort of builders banging and crashing all over the place. And I just thought I've got to get this done because I, had I, had um, I hadn't made any money at all for 14 months and, and um, I was beginning to need some. Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I thought uh, I just, I just have to do this, and, you know, get it all down. And I didn't, I didn't expect any kind of um, great success, but uh, luckily it did, it did um, sell quite well. No, not all that. It was never a kind of smash bestseller, but it, it, it did um, pay the rent for for a, for a bit, and um, it didn't do anything like as well as several other books of mine. So luckily, I was, I was able to keep going. Yeah, my, my my thoughts were, you know, because you wrote it fairly close to the events itself, that you had more uh, fresh knowledge of it versus a book that was written, for instance, in the 1990s, where the case has been long gone. Well, I, I used to uh, make pretty pretty detailed notes at, at Enfield, and I would type them. I would always type them up the following day, and also um, transcribe all of my tapes. There's a total of about 500 pages, A4, t typing um, transcripts of tapes. And that, that was the basis of the book, because it's, it's all absolutely um, authentic, taken from uh, recordings made at the time. Almost every word in the book is actually on tape, so, so I didn't have to um, make anything up. It was all there. Mm -hmm. And that was a great help. I mean, the... The cassette recorder was was a huge benefit to, to to getting these things down, and then also we recorded quite a lot of live action, and bangs and crashes and things, which have been played on the radio numerous times, and um, still are. So um, that, that's how it began. Now, Guy, you you you've obviously, as I say, you you were an inspirational uh, character to me. Your books um, and your your investigations, as I was developing as as a researcher. What do you think I mean, uh, before uh, of the current state of ghost hunting and spontaneous case research? It's pretty good, actually, especially in well, certainly in in Britain and um, notably in Scotland, where my my colleague. Patricia Robertson, who, who's, um, I think she was the founder of the Scottish uh, SBR with the late Archie Roy, 
they did some very fine work. I mean, they, they seem to have more of them in Scotland than we do in England. And um, she, she's a superb researcher, and she seems to come across cases that, that, that other researchers don't don't manage. And um, she's managed to get get some of them published recently, which which um, I highly recommend her. Her book with the wonderful title of Things You Can Do When You're Dead, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I think she chose that for sort of the um, same, same reason that I called my first book The Flying Cow. And I thought that people would pick it up and wonder what the hell this was all about. And, and um, that, that's what you, uh, how you, you have to do something to draw attention to your book to make it stand out from the crowd. So, so that's what I, I did, and that's what she did. Yeah, I, re I remember Archie well, um, sitting in a pub. He was a great teller, in addition to being a fantastic researcher, Archie was a great teller of some very, very blue jokes. Uh, oh, he was wonderful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it came as a complete surprise to me. Now, you've, you've, you've moved on a little bit, although you, you alluded to your continuing interest in poltergeists, to something that we talked about quite recently on our, on our Ghost Chronicles show, and something that's quite personal to me as the older sibling to twin brothers. Uh, oh. Research onto the telepathy between twins. Well, yes, I, I, I moved it from... Uh Poltergeist to twins because they're a lot, they're a lot sort of quieter, you know. I mean, Poltergeist is pretty <laughs> exhausting, and, and you don't tend to get very much sleep. So, so I find twins a, a lot more enjoyable, and especially as I've got to know some of them quite well, and they, they become good friends and very, very helpful in, in research to, to trust each other and that sort of thing. And also, it's it's something that's never been done properly. I mean, there there is no book apart from mine that even tackles the subject head on. I mean, there, there have been numerous um, anecdotes published in books of, of the kind of experiences that twins have, but uh, nobody has really ever tried to make sense of them. And luckily, we now at last have a um, PhD student at, at um, Greenwich University in London who is doing a thesis on, on twin telepathy, which again is a first. And um, he's, he's doing a lot of research. He's been at it for a couple of years. So, I mean, th things are moving up a few gears. It, it's getting very much better. And, and also the good news is that the, um, the largest twin unit in the world, which is also at, um, in London, in King's College, um, Twin Research Unit, they have 11,000 of them, and they've given my colleague Adrian Parker has been granted um, visiting scientist status, which means that he can get into their archive, they can keep and get hold of their twins. They haven't got any money, he has to raise his own funds, but at least he's got access to the, to the material, and has already done several um, experiments in, in, in the university. Um, several of which have been filmed and um, two of them shown on TV, which you can't get any money out of anybody else except television companies, which is unfortunate, <laughs> but that's how it, how it is. And um, so things are moving, and, and it's, 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 um, it's a very elusive, it's almost as elusive as a poltergeist, but it, it, it's, um, it is real. I mean, twins uh, are telepathic, but not all of them, and not all the time. And that's really why, why um, they, they tend to have been overlooked. But 
Uh, well, as, as, a, as an older sibling to twins, I can I can add my own anecdotes to to mm. uh, that possibility. Um, but again, it's something that's transient and fleeting in in my own experiences. Now, this this has resulted in probably the only book that I'm aware of, uh, and one that. Um, it's just twin telepathy is there a special connection which you public which you wrote it i think published in 2012 um but it's gone to several editions yes I, I the assume... first edition was in um 1999 which was very very premature really i just wanted to get something out there to draw attention to the fact that the subject existed and right. that's been very much enlarged and in the current edition i think it's um the third came out in 2012, yes, and um, I've got quite enough material for another one, but I don't, don't know if anybody would buy it. I mean, it's rather hard to sell the same book twice, <laughs> um, but but I'm hope well, I am working at the moment on a on a, on a journal a scientific paper, which is something I'm not very good at, but it, it's it has to be done to attract attention of the sort of people who wouldn't read kind of um, pop, pop stuff that I specialize in. So I'm doing that, and um, that, will, that will be published, hopefully, in, in a refereed journal um, called the Journal of Non-Local something. Uh, I forget what. Um, a, new, a new journal. And... Um, it has to it has to be done very slowly because uh, there's such an enormous taboo um, against um, any any kind of telepathy or any any sort of psychic phenomenon immediately against the so-called skeptics, which which are called the deniers, up in arms, and and they they can't really can't stand it. They they have to um, sweep it under the rug as soon as they can. Mm-hmm. So it's. Um, it's like uh, William Crookes uh, commented about um, 1860 or so. He said the old walls of belief must be broken down with much battering. And he's absolutely right. I mean, it does take a hell of a lot of battering to to, to break down the prejudices and um, sort of sort of uh, taboo mentality that, that still exists very much. And, do, you th- and, um, do you think we ever will break down those barriers? Uh, because yes. I, I noticed that you know even currently there are, there are uh, a large scale assault on Wikipedia, uh, on and on any page, uh, including your own, that deal with um, cases of telepathy. You know, the skeptics seem to have got hold of you know every opportunity to assault belief. Oh. Yes, well, l- luckily. Um Wikipedia has become so blatantly biased and, and totally unreliable. And um, we uh, recently received very generous um, inheritance at the Society for Psycho Research, and we're bringing out our own encyclopedia, which is just about ready to, to launch. Really, it's um, it, it's a kind of it, it's deliberately designed as as a as a, as a counter blast to, to Wikipedia, and um, it hasn't gone out yet. It's been sort of tested in private, but it's um, it's due to be it's due to be published um, to the public quite soon. So so um, stay tuned for that. It's going to be very good. It's got about well, I, it's, uh, more than a hundred authors already taken part, 
including me. I've done four pieces for them, including... You could also add at this entry. point, including me as well. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, well, uh, including us, uh, everybody who's anybody in the SPR, <laughs> including us. And um, it, 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 it'll, it'll go on expanding and growing and so on. And I think hopefully, eventually... Uh, Wikipedia will just fade into the sunset and, and be forgotten, and, and um, it's already not not. Um, I mean, it's been it's been banned by several universities. Not, uh, they don't allow their students to cite it. it. Doesn't count as a genuine reference. Anything faintly sort of to do with parapsychology, it's just got to be uh, the source has to be something else. So that that's an example of how it's getting around. That it's not reliable. Um, we're we're a, coming up there to seems the, to be a growth in the uh, the the uh, community now, especially among uh, past life uh, uh, supporters, that the connection, psychic connection, is more involved in uh, chemical makeup rather than our consciousness. In other words, uh, more of our DNA and that. Is, is this supported by your twin research? Well, we don't really know where one starts and the other stops, and we don't know for a start what consciousness is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a whole journal now of consciousness studies, and they, what, one of their most frequent complaints is that they can't define it. And, and you also can't, um, you can't say really how it works or what it's made of or how it... Or, all you can say about consciousness is the effects that you can see um, the, the end product, as it were, but it, it's still a complete mystery as to why there should be any at all. I mean, why, why, um, why are we conscious and lumps of concrete are, are not, as far as we know, or, or, um, or even uh, to what extent are, are animals, birds, insects Plants. conscious? Um, they, they may be, but not, not, not in the same way that we are. I mean, l- luckily they don't, they don't speak languages and, and cause a general mayhem, which they would if they could. Um, well, that that'd upset the vegetarians. Guy, we're, we're coming towards the, the final minutes of the show. Now, I know that you, you've written, a, uh, I think it's a dozen books, 12 books, uh, mm. and they're all still available, fortunately. Um, well, not all of them. Uh, um, four of them are still in print, which uh, you can find on the internet quite easily. Um, yeah, um, I was going to say, uh, I thought all 12 were, um, I found them quite quite readily um, available. But, but y- well, there, there are, are copies uh, floating around, yes, but the, um, there are only four that are actually in print. Right. Well, five, I think. The one, uh, Chico Xavier, is still, still available. Um, but, the, 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 yes, you can pick up second-hand ones. That, um, you can get hardbacks of the Enfield case for about £200 or so if you if only the money went to the author. But um, White Crow yeah. Books is is the is the primary resource for the current books in print, and we've already put, placed up a link uh, to uh, Twin Telepathy um, and the others that are in print on White Crow Books. Now I understand uh, the Enfield one has been updated since my my version. Um, Yes, not, I, not, I a, not a great out. deal, <laughs> uh, because I didn't want to alter the main story. I didn't think that would be very ethical, but I just added some comments at the end to make it clear that um, efforts to debunk it and so on just really haven't got anywhere, and that, that, that the um, um, case has held up 
very well o- over the years, and um, there is still enormous interest, e- even in the um, the area where it originally happened. They, they remember it very well up in, in Enfield, uh, and um, you can stop people in the street and ask them, and they, they'll tell you what they remember. I'm sure. I'm sure. Come the summer, we'll all be eternally grateful to Ed and Lorraine Warren. But we're coming towards the final moments of the show. And Guy, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. And I only regret that we didn't get longer to speak when uh, tonight, and also while I, whilst I was uh, down in London uh, at the Ghost Club. Oh yeah. Uh, recently, um, I think. I, I, I think. Uh, Ron, do you have any final words? No, it's been a, you know, it's been a really interesting show. And, uh, you know, Guy, I, I thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Right. I think that's been, um, for me, a personal uh, delight to have um, Guy Playfair on tonight, um, who was one of the investigators of the Enfield case. And uh, as I said, I think I've said several times, an inspiration to me and to probably many other uh, spontaneous case and psychical uh, investigators. Um, Ron, what are you doing in the coming week? Uh, Well, actually, tonight you and I... Or in about two hours time. (laughs) You will be joining me at my paranormal study group where we will look at uh, sound in the paranormal and do some remote experiments from the UK and the US. So that should be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to that. That's at Circles of Wisdom in Andover, uh, 978-474-8010. So there's the tunes, which means you've got to wrap it up. Guy, thank you so much. Steve, it's always a pleasure, and... It's time to say goodnight to everyone and tune in next week. And I go bless. Thank you. Good night. From goalies to ghosties. Long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.